You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the For Love of the Land Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All right, guys. Welcome to another um, podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. We've got return guest. I don't remember what number was he. Number four? Number five of the Free Love Land podcast? Yeah, somewhere right in there. Our West Virginia native, but Ohio farmer. That's it. Mr. Todd Watts, thanks for coming back. Yeehaw. Yep. We've got Todd here. We're here in, we're at your place here in Ohio. The Hogan. The Hogan. And we are finally coming out of, I won't say coming out of winter, but um, enjoying some sunshine. We're actually recording on the back deck, looking over Lake Mickey and the Hogan Farm and enjoying the first warm day we've had in Weeks, Forever. it seems like. Matt and I have been on the road. This is... Day seven. Day seven. Or eight, I guess, right? Because we, we've done two... We left last Sunday. Now it's Sunday again. Um, and we'll be on the road again tomorrow, but back home tomorrow night. We've been consulting in oh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. And we'll hit Indiana And tomorrow. we're going to hit Indiana tomorrow. Yes, sir. And so we've worked five... We'll work five properties on this trip. And uh, it's been a fun, fun trip, but it's been mighty, mighty cold. You know what? what is always fun is spending time with clients outside of the property, too, to truthfully understand and get to know them, build those relationships. And, and the other night we had a dinner with, you know, since we have West Virginia close, Ohio close, and several people coming together, you know, within 30 miles plus or minus each direction, um, we and got the, everyone together. And they all kind of know. Somehow connected. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we had a we had a big dinner and um, just got everyone together, like-minded people, talking property, talking management, talking goals, and what they want to do and see on their property. And that was fun. Steak Todd, what did you think? Steak was good. Steak was real good. Yeah. I was sitting here thinking, man, this is the quietest I've heard Todd this whole trip. All we had to do was put a headset on him. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in that Polaris next time we're here, and I'm gonna say, "Here, put this headset on." Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't slow my driving. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, old Jeff Gordon style. <clears throat> what did you think of the dinner, Todd? I know you talked. Man, I, I think I'd like to do that more often. That was great. It was, it was really fun. Yeah. It was not only was the steak good, and my dog loved it. <laughs> he ate the last one. The whole uh, thing. He's smart. He's yeah. It, Stole it, was, it. It was number one. It was good to revisit because one of the one of the landowners, Ryan, used to be my neighbor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Charleston, West Virginia. And then John, I worked with John for probably six or seven, eight years. I trained him in the business that we're in, and yep. so and so I reconnected with him. He owes couple, you everything. Yeah, that's right. He owes me everything. <laughs> but I reconnected with him when he bought his farm about three years ago or so when I bought mine, and then Ryan. I haven't I haven't seen Ryan in well since I moved from there, which is probably six, seven, eight years mm-hmm. ago, and so it was fun to reconnect with him. So hmm. It was really nice. And then 
And then I brought a friend, a friend over who took me on my first ever deer hunt. Mm-hmm. He came, and he has a farm in, in West Virginia as well. And so it was just great. It was just great to sit around and talk some habitat, some hunting, some this, some that. It was just really cool. I, I think my whole, my favorite part, and there's going to be podcasts covering this in the future, but was talking about, John shared some stuff about um, the taxes with, with mm-hmm. land ownership with, with cows or without cows or with income, without income, um, and kind of, there's a lot of information out there that's not shared often on, in podcast world about uh, the benefits of having those type of operations. So that was one of my favorite parts, talking numbers with cows and, and what that would look like on the property, how to involve them. Um, overall, I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It's super easy to get caught up in looking at properties just from a recreational standpoint. But like like you said, a lot of these, these people, property owners, want more out of their property. And it's it's awesome to be able to discuss that plan that and really try and get maximize acres we, we talk about on the, the habitat podcast all the time maximizing acres for habitat but now we we really really have to sit back and, and think how do we maximize acres for wildlife and for for a, a, let's say a, a small livestock operation and, and it, it wasn't really even, it wasn't even livestock they were getting tax deductions for other things yeah it, it was, yeah. Hay it was various crop. Was hay yeah, operations right. it was yeah. Even it was brought up, even if you allowed someone to hunt and you charged them for it, yeah. that allows you to qualify for a deduction. Yeah. In my case, I lease I leased 80 acres to a farmer mm-hmm. who paid me rent. Well, deduction. Yeah. So it allows you to write off equipment or write off depreciation, all these things. And, and I was a little bit surprised. I, I hadn't gone down that avenue yet. And I'm going to meet with an accountant soon. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, was, it was pretty big what the value it gave back to you from a financial perspective. Yeah. Well, we want to talk this whole podcast on something that Todd is very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Very much so. um, That's never been covered in our podcast. Nope. Um, And so I mentioned as soon as we opened up, we're staring over Lake Mickey or Mickey Lake. Lake Mickey. Lake Lake Mickey. Mickey. Um, And so we're going to talk pond management, pond architecture, laying out ponds, things to not do, things to do, things to look for. Todd, you've got a, I don't even know how long you've been looking at the pond and creating. Now you, I know you said you built it in your mind for 20 years yes. or something yes. like that. So there's, when you look at a pond, um, sometimes if you're just like from a fishing standpoint, you're like, it's water and I don't know what's underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like where I'm from, there's a lot of ponds created for cattle but there's not a whole lot of thought into fish structures and diversity That's within right. a pond. That's right. And so uh, this pond, how big? It's four acres, right at four acres. And mm-hmm. it kind of wraps here. We're sitting on at the lodge, and we're kind of looking, and I can't see the I can't see the far east side, but um, kind of wraps around. Mm-hmm. Um, what What was it about? So you bought this farm mm-hmm. how many years ago? Three, 2016. What was the first thing you did when you bought it? Well, the first thing I did before I bought it was look at a topo map to make sure I could build a pond. Yeah. Because in reality, when I bought this farm, I didn't have deer hunting in mind. And yeah. that what was covered mm-hmm. on another podcast. I won't go yeah. back into that. But <clears throat> I bought this to build a pond. I wanted yeah. to build a pond from scratch. And you mentioned 20 years that I, I, I watched a Ray Scott video yep. 20 years ago called Great Small Waters. And at that time, it was on VHS. Mm-hmm. And it was about how to build your own bass pond and bass lake. 
And I probably watched that video. I wore that VHS out, and then I ordered the DVD, wore it out. I probably watched it 100 times. And then I've probably read four or five books on bass, and, and my, my target was largemouth bass. And so for 17 years, I built a pond in my mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the land. I didn't have the pond. But I built it in my mind exactly what I wanted it to be. So when I first looked at this farm and any farm I looked at, I w- the first criteria was could I build a pond. And I wanted, I wanted no less than three acres and no more than about six. From a construction standpoint? From a construction, from a maintenance, from mm-hmm. a cost. It's just that the sweet spot to me is that four to six acres. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And so this wasn't, it's not like this was the first property you looked at either. No, I looked at two, over 200. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what was now, it? I didn't physically look at every sure. 200, but that's. Yeah. You probably, analyzed I analyzed probably about 200. Critically. That's my estimate. Over five or six years. <clears throat> what was it about this property that you're like, you know what? I c- here, this is the one. Sure. Well, I won't get into all the regulation, but the the EPA basically says you can't dam up waters, and I won't really get into yeah, all yeah. that. But some some EPAs and some Corps of Engineers who kind of runs the program in the country, some are more strict and some are not. Around here, they're very strict. Yeah. So you cannot dam up a stream of any kind. Right. Well, how do you build a pond without damming up a stream? <laughs> yeah, where's your so, water? So I had to basically find a farm or a property that laid in such a way that I could basically build a levee or a dam that didn't dam up a stream but collected rainwater. Still collected water, yes. And so this was a fortunate property that had about a 70-acre drainage around it that supplied enough water to build right at a four-acre lake. Yep. And that's that's one thing. You have to be very careful when you build a lake and you put a dam that if you have to have the proper watershed. If you have too much watershed, your dam's going to you're going to have a tough time holding the water in the dam. Right. You don't have enough, you can't keep it filled. Mm-hmm. So it's a fine line between It's a healthy how much, balance. Yes, it's a healthy balance because a watershed will only support so much of a lake. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So you found the place. Yes. Got under contract. Mm-hmm. Started building, yes. started planning. Yes. What was construction like? Kind of break that down from a from a step plan, you know. Sure. Take us through that process. Sure. Well, let me go back a little bit. There's three to four million. We don't know exactly, but let's let's just call it for the lack of saying, you know, being too detailed. There's three to four million private lakes in the United States. Yeah. The majority of them, it's estimated that over 90% of them are built like a bowl. Okay. Like they're, they're built to f- feed cattle, feed livestock, swim. Mm-hmm. Just people build lakes. They just dam up something and they put water in it and they have a bowl. Yep. That's great from a perspective of swimming and for livestock, but that's not a great fishery. Bass are, and bluegill, and really all fish species, are edge creatures, just like deer and, and other wildlife. Mm-hmm. And they like to have structure and cover. So they like to have depth changes. They like to have points and ridges and holes, yep. deep water, shallow water, spawning beds, all this habitat. It's very complicated under the water to have a really great fishery. So when I went to build this lake and construct this lake, number one, and I, had to, I wanted to make sure that the bass and the bluegill, because our species are bass and bluegill, mm-hmm. that they had everything they needed to feed, congregate, loaf, spawn, and thrive. So we needed shallow water, we needed deep water, we needed spawning beds, we needed ridges, humps, and all of those features. Because different times of the year, fish need different things. For example, in the middle of the summer when it's really, really, really hot, they need to go deeper. Yep. And they need to go deeper to stay cool because a bass and bass in particular doesn't function very well above about eighty eight degrees. I hope everybody's catching the, the 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 correlation. You could you could take largemouth bass and fish 
Cross that out and put deer. Absolutely. Cross that out and put quail. Absolutely. Cross that out and put quail. Yes. Or, or cows. That's right. There's, Turkeys. It's any, the exact any same thing. It's exactly species, the same. Wildlife species. They so have yeah. the exact yeah. things that they need. I think that's the way God made it. That's exactly. right. You know. Intricate. And so the the optimum temperature for bass is, you know, give or take, around 70 to 80 degrees. That's the optimum. Once it gets starts getting much, much above 85, 86, 87, they don't like it very well. And now they can handle cooler water, but it's that... It's that heat. So in the summer, they go deeper to stay cool, but they don't go too deep because it, you lose oxygen as the lower you get. Yeah. Well, in the winter, it's the same way. They go deep to stay warm because in the winter, the coldest water is at the surface. Mm-hmm. The warmest water is at the, at the deepest. Well, in the spring and the fall, it's the complete opposite. They, it's the water's cooler. It's perfect growing conditions. So they put on most of their growth in the spring and the fall, and that's when they're, they'll feed in the, near the surface in the spring and the fall and go deep during the middle of the day. So, back to the question, when you go to build a lake, you have to think of all that. You have to think of the depths. The, but when you build a bowl, like most people do, yep. you don't have the structure, you don't have the cover, you don't have the depth changes. And so fish just end up hanging around one spot, and it just doesn't make for a good fishery. So, you set out mm-hmm. to not have that. Correct. What in the design mm-hmm. of this pond, or lake... Mm-hmm. makes it so special sure that's more than a podcast but <laughs> i'll try my best <laughs> you got five minutes now you're gonna do <laughs> yeah. you're gonna have to do a repeat visit i guess yeah that's down right. the road that's right i have a feeling a lot of people are going to like this podcast Very, because exactly most yeah. people don't know all about the intricacies yeah. of a pond and how to properly build one so this is this is extremely informational mm-hmm. packed and I'm sure you you could do you could start oh, a yeah. whole podcast yeah, could, on building yeah. ponds a whole series i could do a series on this yeah well, the, the, let's go back to not only what the fish need, but what does the angler need? And when, we went to, when I went to build this pond, I, I thought about I wanted to mimic a large impoundment in a small body of water. Now, here's mm-hmm. what I mean by large impoundment. Think of the, the best fishing lakes, fishing lakes all around the country, whether it be Kentucky Lake or Lake of the Ozarks or, or um, Table Rock or just, you know, keep naming them. They're these famous fisheries that bass fishermen and fisher, you know, sports persons and all across, they're just known for great habitat and great. And mm-hmm. what do they have? And, and think about what does an angler look for when he's going out to catch a bass? They all talk about rocky points and flats. They talk about underwater, you know, old creek beds, old right. road beds. Changes, in, in, changes in depth. Everything. Docks. Docks. That's a great Shade. one. Shade. Yep. Structure. Exactly. And so that's what all these big impoundments have. And that's where they catch the fish. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do with our Lake Mickey, and I'll explain just a moment why it's Lake Mickey, by the way. I have to get that in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but what I did when, when we designed this lake, and I had the help of a, a wonderful fisheries biologist named Bob Lusk out of Texas, probably the most well-known fisheries biologist in the industry. So I have to give him a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. But the design was is that we wanted every single feature of a large impoundment to be in our lake. We wanted docks. We wanted shade. We wanted underwater humps. We wanted underwater islands. We wanted underwater holes. We wanted creek beds. We wanted ridges. We wanted docks. We wanted boat rents. We wanted all that, and we have it. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was very, very important is we've got to keep the angler in mind as well about ease of fishing. We wanted to make sure that when you walked around the perimeter of our pond, that everywhere you walked, you would have some structure to throw a, a lure at, some depth change to throw a lure at, so that effectively 
you can fish the entire lake in any season, hot, cold, warm, it doesn't matter, because everywhere we put, even in the shallowest part of the lake, we have a 10-foot hole right smack in the middle of that four-foot mm-hmm. four, four depth. Yeah. And then in some of the deeper parts, we put an underwater island, so in the deepest part of the lake, it's actually a ridge, in the deepest part of the lake, which is somewhere between 13 and 14 feet, depending on the depth we have it, there's a ridge that runs right through that deep part that has a shallow part that's literally, literally three feet under the water. So you could literally get spawning in the deepest part of our lake. Yeah. So when you walk around the lake and fish, you can literally fish any season, and you're going to catch a fish. And second of all, w- if you put a boat in, which we have a small tracker bass boat, same thing. There's plenty right. of places to sit around and, and fish from a boat, same thing. Plenty of places to catch fish. So that's just from a construction standpoint. The whole other issue, which we can get into a few minutes if you want to, is the whole stocking plan. But we'll we'll get to that. Lake Mickey. Lake Mickey. <coughs> Everything about this farm is named after our our, our dogs. Mm-hmm. We're dog lovers, and we we now are on our fifth German Shepherd. The whole farm is named after a wonderful dog named. His name was Hogan, and we named him after Hogan's Heroes. If you remember, oh yeah, at the I beginning of Hogan's Heroes, they had the German Shepherds. Well, he was a black German Shepherd, but still, he that was the first thing that came to our mind, so we named him Hogan. He lived for 11 years, was a phenomenal dog. So we had a campfire one evening up behind the house, and a friend of mine took a picture of the fire. And that next morning when we were looking at it, in the, in the, the smoke was this wonderful, distinct picture of a German shepherd's head. And Todd it was showed not doctored. this morning. It's creepy. Yeah, it's like, not well, doctored. You, you think like, oh, God, this, what's this guy on? Yeah. But seriously, like, it looks like a dog in the smoke. It's wild. Huh. And there really was no wild. fog or anything. And so my wife and I knew that was a sign, and we named it the Hogan. Well, we had another dog, uh, unfortunately, get killed by a car last year. It was a, he was an 11-month-old German Shepherd, and he was Mickey. Okay. So we named the lake Lake Mickey. Lake Mickey. Mm-hmm. When I think of Mickey... Uh, my wife's name is Nikki, and I had a, a nephew. Uh, I have a nephew that when he was a, a little, uh, little bitty kid, he just started talking. He called my wife, tried to call her Mickey, uh, and so he'd always say, "Where, where Mickey, Nikki?" So, so your yeah. new nickname for her is Mouse. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I try to keep a. Uh, try I, to keep I, her my, happy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's right. So, <clears throat> creating the pond. How how long did it take to create? Sure. We started construction, I believe it was in June. Yep. And we finished construction right around the end of November, or excuse me, October. Yep. And we were fortunate, unlike this year, which we had 69 inches of rain, which is way above normal. In 2016, we had the opposite. We basically had a drought for three months, which was terrible for every other thing (laughs) other than building a pond. Yeah. It It was was great for building a pond. Well for you. Time perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And we were worried because it was so dry, we were worried about it filling up. Mm -hmm. and. Even into December, we only had a few feet of water in the pond, and we were really worried. And I actually dug a well, thinking I'm going to have to use this well, but it finally filled up over the winter, and we've never had a problem since. Right. Mm. Right. So stocking. Stocking. That. That's. That's. To me, this is one thing that I. Th- I think. A lot of people probably mess up. Mm-hmm. Seems like I've dealt with a lot of people, or seen a lot yes. of farms where yes. people have messed up. Absolutely, it, it is. It's. It's. J- just like uh, developing a design plan. You had to have a, a plan for a rich, you know, where you start at from a yes, stocking rate. absolutely. And then what you're going to do, the management of those fish absolutely. in this system for years down the road. So right. I guess uh, what's your, what was your goal for, sure. this, with, for this farm and then get sure. into that stocking rate? 
That's a great question, and, and you're absolutely right. And there's conventional stocking and there's unconventional stocking, and I'll talk very briefly mm-hmm. both. But here was the goal. Our goal for this lake was to, we really had two main goals, and they tend to counteract each other. Because remember, a pond is a closed system. Yep. It's not like wild deer and turkey that can just go everywhere. It's a closed system. And if you think about a closed system, it doesn't take long for a bass pond or any pond to get overcrowded. Right. And when it gets overcrowded, you have too many mouths trying to eat the food, and they all get skinny. Like a deer population. Exactly. Just like carrying de- capacity. It just, it's all about carrying capacity. And because it's a closed system, it happens very, very quickly. Sure. We've all seen it. We've all been to these ponds that you can throw a lure in and catch a bass, All just lots of them, but they're all skinny. Mm-hmm. And they typically stun out about 12 to 14 inches. So you catch all kinds of 12 to 14-inch bass that are skinny, and they're just completely overcrowded. That's normal. And we wanted to make sure, number one, we avoided that. But here's the problem. We wanted high catch rates. Right. Because we wanted all along to be able to go and catch fish. It's no fun to take a new fisher person and go out there and fish for three hours and catch one fish. That's no fun. Yeah. But if you can go out and catch 20 or 30 fish an hour, then you may run into a population problem. So it's a, it's a very... It's, it's a, very, a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. So now that goes into the management of it. We'll get to that in a second. But it also goes into the stocking because you have to stock based on those goals. So our two main goals were high catch rates, but we also truly want to try to grow the state record bass. Mm-hmm. Now, we may never catch that bass because the older they get, they're like trying to kill a seven-and-a-half-year-old wise deer. It, yeah. they're, they're hard to kill. Well, bass are the same way. The older bass are just – the reason they got big is because they're really good in their environment. The Ohio state record is 13.13 pounds. I don't know why it's .13 and why it's not ounces, but that's what it is. And we truly believe that, that we have everything needed to do that. So big fish and lots of fish. So let's go back to the stocking. We had to stock with that in mind. So number one, if we were going to carry basically a high carrying capacity, which mm-hmm. is what we're doing, yep. our design is to carry a high carrying capacity, we had to have a couple things. We had to have a lot of structure in place to protect the small fish, which we do. There's structure everywhere. Number two, we, wanted to, we needed to have plenty of forage. Because we're going to carry more fish than a normal lake is able to carry, which we'll get into feeding in a moment as well. Mm -hmm. But we had to stock it in such a way there's plenty of forage fish. So we way overstocked the bluegill population. We we stocked uh, about 21,000 bluegills Mm. in in two different stockings. How big were they when you stocked them? Uh, Bluegills you typically stock. uh, (coughs) Ours was was different. (coughs) Let me talk conventional first. Conventional wisdom says you stock minnows and bluegills the first year, and you stock basically juveniles, and then you let them grow a year and get bigger, and then the next year they're big enough, and then you stock fingerling bass because the fingerlings can't eat the bluegill. So you really give your bluegill a year to get bigger and start Mm -hmm. spawning, and then you stock the, the, the fingerling bluegills, and they can't really eat the, excuse me, the fingerling bass. They cannot eat the bluegills until the next year so you really give your bluegills a couple years that's the conventional wisdom okay well i didn't want to wait three years to start catching fish i've been waiting 17 years i'm not waiting three more (laughs) (laughs) so so bob blusk he he put together uh, together a phenomenal management plan but he told me when he put it together that now you have to understand because we're stocking this like an existing mature lake Mm mm-hmm you, you're going to have to do some things, for example, feed and, and watch your forage. So here's what we did. 21,000 bluegills, of which 
most of those were adults. Okay, it's a little more expensive, but we stocked adult bluegills. So uh, an adult bluegills, four or five inches. What, what's the qualification to make an adult? What size? That's that's probably you know they're you know think of your hand. Yeah. That's a if you open up your hand, that's a big bluegill. Right. Yeah. So about half that probably. Okay. We're, we're most of them, and we stocked those. But the same day we stocked two hundred northern bass adults. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now. Again, this could be 73 podcasts, but I'm trying to <laughs> squeeze this down. Northern, there's two distinct uh, subspecies of largemouth bass in this country. There's Florida, there's what's called the Florida strain, and then there's the northern strain. Pretty much above the Mason-Dixon line, Florida bass will not live. They, they, don't, they can't handle temperatures below about 45 degrees, and that's stressing it. Well, we have ice on our pond right now, so yeah. we get temperatures in the, in the high 30s and low 40s, so they just can't survive. Northern bass, however, they can survive up north, but they don't get as big. Now, northern bass, a big northern is about eight pounds. That's a big one. But, but again, we have some state records that, like in Ohio, that's 13, which we kind of believe that it was probably had some Florida genes somewhere in it. But generally speaking, eight to ten pounds is a huge northern. Well, Floridas are the ones that people are catching for world records. The right. Florida strains are twenty over twenty pounds at times. Goodness. Yeah, it's nothing to catch a thirteen, fourteen pound bass in Texas or Florida. Right. In their Florida strain. So we had originally stocked two hundred northerns, all adult, all feed trained, and that's a key: feed trained. They will come to fish food. A normal bass grown up in the wild will not come to fish food. It's very rare. They won't. They won't do it. You have to get them that way from the hatchery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those fish were between one and two pounds. The biggest was two pounds. The smallest was one pound. The average was about one and a half. So those were several-year-old fish that were considered adults, and mm-hmm. they could spawn and so forth, and we could catch them. In fact, I caught my first fish three days after we stocked it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our initial stocking for two reasons. We wanted to be able to catch fish, but number two, we wanted an insurance policy as if the next fish I'm talking about didn't do well. We bought, I believe it was 4,000 F1 Tiger Bass. It's actually a trademark mm-hmm. from American Sport Fish from Alabama. Now, F1 Tiger Bass is a cross between a very large Florida and a very aggressive northern. They actually genetically, you know, f- through selective breeding yeah. over the last two decades, have put this thing together. Put this thing together, and that's why they're trademarked. And they, they're, they're called a hybrid, they're called F1s. Because they're the first hybrid from the Northerns and the Floridas. And then after that, they're called FXs, but that's another story. But they grow bigger than Northerns, but they're more aggressive than Floridas. And they live up here. So they're going to grow bigger than the Northerns. So we stocked 4,000 of those, of which 2,000 were fingerlings, which we know a lot of those were going to get eaten the first year by the other bass. And then we stocked another 2,000 that were between a half a pound and a pound, okay? So that was our stocking, and that was in May of 16, or excuse me, May of 17. So as an antidote on the side, the largest bass we stocked was a two-pound northern. Okay, there was only one of those, Mm -hmm. and the northerns don't grow as fast and as big as the F1s. I caught a a five-and-a-quarter-pound bass in October of this year. That bass could not have been more than two pounds a year and a half before that because we didn't stock one bigger than a two pound. Yeah. And that fish was probably not that one two pounder. It was likely a one and three quarter pounder because that just would have been too much luck. 
that fish had to grow between one and a half to two pounds up to five pounds in literally one and a half years. Mm. That's our feeding program, which we can talk about. So whenever you want. You, that that's a sample or or an example of the health of mm-hmm. this body of water. Yes. From from a stocking um, rate and then to what what the pond is doing. Yes. I mean, yes. when do you or how many years do you think it could take? To get to that ten pound plus range, it, 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 sure. if you if you continue with the management sure. plan and everything, sure. There's two things that 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 are causing this rapid growth. Number one is the genetics, mm-hmm. okay. But that fish we caught was a northern, yeah. because there's no way it's biologically probably impossible. Maybe not. Maybe Bob will someone will tell me I'm crazy. But our F1s we stocked from Alabama, the biggest one was about a pound. That fish is not going to be over five pounds in one growing season or yep. one and a half growing season. So that had to have been a northern. So that wasn't our fastest growing fish. So something mm-hmm. is causing that to happen, and here's why. Two th- two reasons. We have lots of bluegill because the primary feed over time for the forage for a largemouth bass is bluegill in this lake. They love to eat bluegill. Number two is we aggressively feed. Mm-hmm. And we feed Aquamouth, Aquamax, Purina Aquamax largemouth sport fish. And, and really, there's two types. There's what most people feed, which are little small pellets, and that'll feed all fish. That'll feed the bluegills, that'll feed the bass, that'll feed everything. And then they have what's called largemouth pellets that are about the size of a small golf ball, a little bit smaller than a golf ball. Well, only the largemouth bass can eat those. Mm-hmm. So we know when we feed that, only it's only going to the bass. Now, here's a little biology for you. A bass, or any game fish, but let's, we're talking bass here, a largemouth bass to gain one pound has to eat 10 pounds of bait fish. Right. And that, that is to gain a pound. Uh, not even getting into what it takes to maintain. You yep. know, it takes several pounds just to maintain, but we're talking about just to grow. Yep. Because most of a fish is water. You're not really getting the nutrients. So just conv- remember, 10 to 1. 10 pounds of bait fish will put 1 pound on a bass. The conversion ratio for the feed we're feeding is 1.8. Yeah. So let's just say 2 to 1. So for every pound we feed fish food, it puts a half a pound on a bass. True weight. We fed 2,000 pounds of largemouth last year, Lar- just largemouth feed, which doesn't get eaten by anyone but the largemouth bass. So we know we added 1,000 pounds of weight to our fishery in just bass last year. That doesn't count what they're eating in bluegills mm-hmm. and crawfish and worms and all the other stuff in the pond, and that doesn't count they also will still feed on the small pellets. We feed the bluegill. Yeah. So they're getting more than that. So we know that last year we probably added several thousand pounds of weight to our <coughs> bass, over and above what they would have done on their own. That's why we had we caught that five pounds. So to answer yeah. your question, 10 pounds, we truly believe there will be eight pounders in here this year. Truly believe. That's, that's, that's probably a no-brainer. Now, wow. when we catch them, I don't know. Next year we'll have 10 pounders. That's incredible. There's hope, Matt, that you might catch a bass over five pounds. There is hope. <laughs> You're going to need a bigger. I, I need a bobber. You need, need, need a bigger a, boat. I, need, I, need, yeah. well, I, I need was going to say you might want to update your pole because it, it's going to be a struggle on the Snoopy pole. <laughs> I got the Scooby-Doo pole, actually. Oh, gotcha. You know what I'm going to get, Matt? mystery machine. You know what? one of those rocket poles? Oh, yeah, that shoots yeah. it out there. shoots cool. it out. Yeah. <laughs> Whole Fisher Price. Yeah. So 
what is the what what do you think about uh, looking at your property what's mm-hmm. been or looking at your pond what is the one structure that you're if you were to go down there fishing what's the structure you want to fish i know that depending sure. on the time of the year sure. but yeah based on your favorite lure because i'm gonna ask sure. you your favorite lure to fish sure. with. sure absolutely if if i have a new angler that just needs to catch fish yeah we go to our dock because okay. what we did with the dock is we created structure underneath the dock we recreated mm-hmm. within casting distance a ridge that goes anywhere depths of five feet to seven feet and we have a lot of habitat on top and off the sides but then we have deep water on both sides it's hard to visualize as we're talking but just think of a spine so right in front of the dock there's deep water in front of the dock there's deep water then there's a spine this ridge and then on the other side there's deep water and then on top of that ridge and off to each side we have lots of structure we have several trees laying off the side we have a pvc habitat on top we have rock piles and everything all within the casting distance of the dock and so i can take a new angler that's never fished before and i can take them on that dock in in the spring months or the fall months and they can literally catch a bass on their first cast mm. now for me because i enjoy the challenge of fishing yeah. i usually don't fish there yeah. because it's too easy I, i'm being just being honest you can I can literally stand on that dock. Like shooting fish in a barrel. It is. It's like shooting <laughs> fish in a barrel. In fact, we had a little friendly bass tournament back in, I believe it was October. And it was myself and four buddies from high school. And then we had my niece's husband. He came out. He doesn't fish that much. Well, the four of us have, have fished a lot. So we were walking around, you know, talking smack to each other and whatever. He stood on that dock and caught in one hour. 35 bass oh my gosh so there you go yeah but that's not my favorite so if if you were going fishing here or anywhere and like where what's your favorite lure to fish with it's changed but if if i only had one lure it would be a trick worm okay because you can do so many things with a trick worm you can jerk it you can let it fall you can put a weight on it and run it across the bottom so many things you can do with it yeah but my favorite lure outside of a worm is a jerk bait yeah. And because you can you can do them shallow depths, deep depths, but based on the weights, and you can do them with or without rattles, so it's all mm-hmm. season and yeah. that's the one I use the most. Yeah. Yeah. If so I was to say time of year. Sure. For this lake. Sure. When do you want to be fishing? Absolutely. Fortunately for our lake, because of all we've done for it, you can pretty much fish it all year long, including the winter. We've mm-hmm. actually caught bass in the middle of winter. Now mm-hmm. right now it's ice, so yeah, you're not gonna yeah. be catching any fish. But let's talk when you can really, truly catch a lot of fish. Basically, it's no different than any other lake in any part of the country. It's the, all about water temperature. Mm-hmm. And bass are going to be very active, even though they're optimums, let's say 70 to 80, they're going to be active from anywhere from about 55 degrees to about 85 degrees. That's when you're going to be able to catch them. That's water temp. So if you think when that is, that's m- late March in this part of the country mm-hmm. through late June. And then the fishing slows down July and August because we had literally surface temperatures of 92, 93 degrees last yeah. year. And they're just not going to, they, they don't do yeah. well on that. And then it slows down in July and August and then starts picking back up in September. And it's great until about mid-November. And you can, you can go out here. Not only catch you, can you catch a big fish, but in an hour you can catch 15, 20, 30 fish. And it's just fun. Now, herein lies the problem. Do you remember when we talked about the closed system and yep. we talked about we wanted high catch rates, which we're getting, mm-hmm. but we wanted big fish. Yep. Those two don't 
are two management goes that goals that typically do not coincide, mesh together. Yeah. They don't coincide. It's no different than the deer population. You, in some cases, if you have way too many deer, you're going to have less food, less habitat, which is going to cause all deer to not reach their potential. Mm -hmm. It's the same way with bass. Certainly. Exactly. So we counteract that a little bit by feeding aggressively, but therein lies another problem. It's nutrient load. Mm -hmm. Unlike, again, the open system, a bass lake is a closed system. And if you feed too much and you put too much nutrient in the pond, you're going to have a lot of waste. Mm -hmm. And and think about it theoretically, you don't want to cause a too much waste because that's too many nutrients and that can cause fish kills. Right. So there's a there's a little bit of a balance. So we want to keep our high catch rates, but we also want to have big fish. So it's it's a balance. Now this year we're going to have to start culling aggressively. Uh, explain that a little bit. Sure. Um, because we we've talked about that on the hunting the sure. hunting habitat sure. podcast. Absolutely. You know, the theory of culling, and, and again, we're making a comparison sure, here now between right. closed systems and that's open right. systems. And that's open right. systems is what we talk about with, with deer herds and everything. But now we're in a closed system, so culling takes on a different... Totally um, different. Not different role, but a different meaning. Yes. And different success. What does yes. that mean for a lake like this? Sure. When you look at, at the whitetail world, as you guys know, and you've talked about, and the studies have shown, you cannot, you cannot impact a wild, free-ranging herd of deer by trying to cull genetically. It just doesn't, you, and you all can be more scientific about it, right. but that's the basics of it. That is totally the opposite in a lake, mm -hmm. in a closed system lake. You can affect the genetics, and you absolutely can affect that by culling. Now, we don't cull specifically for genetics. The first reason we cull is just too many mouths for, for feed. It's, it's just a numbers It's thing. just a numbers game. But what happens in a bass lake is, when you, when you do your culling, if done correctly, you do the genetically inferior fish. And you think, well, how do you know what they are? It's simple. They're the ones that aren't as big. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not talking about big in total size. I'm talking about big in relative size. Now, let me explain what that is. In the bass world, there's what's called relative weight. Right. Okay. And relative weight is what should a bass be at that length, weight-wise. All right? Like a so body mass index for, yes, for humans. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, for example, a 12-inch ba bass should weigh 0.87 pounds. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, it's underweight for a reason. Either it's genetically not inferior in it's inferior genetically, or it's just not doing well in its lake. So either way, it's mm -hmm. not thriving. So mm -hmm. we want to make sure every bass in our lake is thriving. So the first thing we look at when we catch a bass is relative weights. And we track those. So I've been mm -hmm. tracking those for two years. And what relative weight means, a relative weight of 100 is not the average. It's different in the bass world. It's the top 75 percentile. Gotcha. So in other words, if 75 percent of your bass are sk they're skinnier than the relative weight of 100, mm -hmm. only the top 25 have 100 or better. We never ever want to get to 100 or below in this lake. Right. If it's a bass we catch below 100, regardless of the size, we're going to take it out. Mm -hmm. It's gone. It, it can't. It can't live in our lake anymore. Yeah. For some reason, it's not doing what it. It's not thriving. So we get that out. So that's one less mouth out, and that, and we know that that bass is never going to grow to be a trophy because uh -huh. it's not making it, you know, now. Now, here's something else you do with relative weights. What we do, by tracking our relative weights, we can track trends. So, for example, right now, if you look across our age classes, across our links, our average bass is probably about 115, which is pretty good. Relative weight. Relative weight, which is pretty good because mm -hmm. remember, the top 25% are 100. Yep. We're at 115. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if some of our bass are 130, mm-hmm. and some of ours are 102 and 103, yeah. but the average is probably 115, closer to 118 probably. Well, if next year our relative weights show they're now at 105, mm-hmm. what's that telling us? That's telling us either we have a forage problem or yep. we have too many mouths. What do you have to do? Mm-hmm. Start taking out bass. And, Lit- then and that, that's the thing, literally taking them out. They're oh, out of the system. They're out of the system. And it's done two ways, mm-hmm. either by angling. Yep. So you tell the angler, here's the size of bass we want out. Now, sometimes you put in a slot limit and you say, okay, it looks like if the relative weights are your five pounds and up are really good, you don't touch those. If the relative weights are your, it's usually your 10 to 14 inch bass that are causing the trouble. They're the ones that overcrowd. But so if you're not getting too scientific, you just take out whatever age class is doing the worst or what there are too many of them. But what we're going to do is we're going to do more selective culling, which is take out those bass that are under relative weights of whatever we want. Okay. So one way is angling. The other way is electrofishing. Mm-hmm. You go around yep. and you shock the lake, and it puts a temporary shock. It stuns the fish. You scoop them out. Float to the top. You test them. You test them. You weigh them. You measure them. And you take out the ones that don't meet your qualifications. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And that's how we're going to maintain great size, but still high catch rates. It's that happy balance. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So there is a distinct management to this, just like any other system, mm-hmm. any other population. Um that we talk about on podcasts mm-hmm. and, and any type of management, um, land management, water management, whatever it is, if you have, you know, property, you have to manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, what does the next, let's say, three years look like for this lake in, in a management? It's going to be exciting. We're going to have to uh, aggressively start culling this year because my guess is, now we don't know this. That, that, that's the thing about this lake, I think, as opposed to, most lakes on most farms we're not going to do anything because we just think we're going to let the science tell us Uh so as i start catching fish and start weighing them next year we'll know very quickly if our fish are worse or better than last year Mm -hmm. not only and and matt and adam we didn't talk about this but again i said this could be 70 podcasts (laughs) i actually have them tracked by month so Uh for example you don't want to compare a bass that you caught last year in april to a bass you caught in august you have different growings. That's right, yeah, because they're stressed time. in August. They're probably going to lose because they, they slow down in July and August. They're probably not as heavy in August as they are unless they may. Mm-hmm. But then they gain weight again in the winter, just like deer. Sure. They feed up for the winter. Probably the heaviest they are, other than spawning mm-hmm. for the females, is probably October. So we okay. want to compare October weights two years ago to October weights today yep. and last year. We don't want to compare july waste it's, it's not fair from it's not the, fair. the cycle in which that's right you know these fish are going through on a yearly that's basis right. so every decision we make is going to be based on how did how's the relative weight doing versus what it was this same time a year ago and two years ago that's one thing so we're going to do that and we're going to do that we also have to we keep the ph just mm-hmm. like our food plots mm-hmm. ph is extremely important in a lake and another thing is you have to keep it fertilized properly because you need what's called a plankton bloom. Mm-hmm. Because the little fish, if you think about it, when a fish gets hatched, you know, they're, they're just less than a pinhead. They can't eat other fish. Mm-hmm. They survive the first, first they, eat their, they first eat their own yolk mm-hmm. or whatever, their egg, their, excuse me, their sac. And then they start eating basically phytoplankton and zooplankton and just that, that green algae and so forth. 
until they get bigger, then they start eating small invertebrates and insects. And then they start, you know, it's just a, it's the food web. Yeah. Well, if you have a, a lake that you can see 10 feet down and it's clear and it's beautiful, that's a biological desert. Mm-hmm. It's no different than a crop field that just it's got fescue. It, it's and, just that, like and that's fescue. one of the biggest problems with the invasive species like the zebra mussels. Yes. Who are Consuming filter that. feeders yes. who are eating those yes. same things at, at a much higher rate because the population, they don't have a natural predator. Right. And they're taking away from those baby fish. That's mm-hmm. right. So we, I, I, I want to share a story for mm-hmm. you because I fished a lot growing up, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> we call it fishing under the lights. Have you ever fished under the lights? Mm-hmm. Um, we we basically dock out, kind of tie up on a on a point of a lake, and at night, sun's down, it's dark. You have a light. You have light on top of the boat, so you can kind of see what you're doing. But you drop the la- you drop the other lights down, so usually like green bars. And you see these little bitty, like, things kind of coming around the light. And mm-hmm. basically, it's the plankton. Yeah. And then it turns into where you start seeing a little bit bigger fish. Yep. Um, but they're still tiny little fish, and they're coming in to eat those. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing more of the shad move in. And, and you Absolutely. start seeing this glitter effect where they're starting to be more shad. And then that's when the big fish come in. And Absolutely. So it's, it's like basic bringing the whole food chain in. You attract bugs, too. Yep, it bugs Insects. as well. Yeah. Yep. In fact, they have a there's a product out. I can't remember what it's called. That's basically a light you set on your dock, and it's got a like a fishing line or like a yep. weed eater line yep. on a motor. Yeah, and it kills the. That's right. Knocks the bugs, bugs down in the right. water. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. You turn the light on. You turn the that whipper <laughs> thing on, and as the bugs collect, it smacks the bugs and knocks <laughs> them in the water, and they're just a feeding frenzy. And yeah. it's it's neat. Yeah. It's Same concept. Yeah. Same yeah. concept. Yeah. Matt, you mentioned things to do. We're going to call aggressively. We're going to continue to feed aggressively. Right. But because the lake is going to be now three years old, mm-hmm. really two and a half to three, and we're adding a lot of nutrients, mm-hmm. we want to make sure that we don't develop too much muck on the bottom. Because sure. one of the real problems, you've seen these lakes that are old. You, you go by in the summer, they're just covered with this yucky green stuff, and they smell. Yeah, That's too, much, too many nutrients. Mm-hmm. That's a lake that needs rehabbed. We don't ever want to get in that situation. Yep. How because, do you fix that? Okay. Because we're pushing the, well, if it's too bad, you have to drain it and yeah. muck Kinda it out. Restart. Or have a, have a dredger come and take care of it. But we're not going to ever want to get to that. And here's how we avoid it. Now, remember, we're pushing the envelope with numbers of fish, mm-hmm. but still trying to go bigger. So we have to aff- aggressively feed because we're balancing a high population with high, you know, with, with big fish. So it's that balancing effect. Yeah, it would be it would be like trying to feed a deer herd to make them bigger, but yet that has its own complications. So yeah. we're adding these nutrients. So we're going to have to start diffusing this year. Now, what a diffuser is? It's a, basically a bubbler mm-hmm. you put on the bottom, and it's based on size of lake. You put so many in, in in spaces, you have it well designed, and it's this thing that sits on the bottom that has a hose to it, and it just blows bubbles, yep. and that basically takes the water column and continually moves it, so that because remember, how does how does muck or any biology decompose? It has to have oxygen. Yep. Well, there's in the summer there's no oxygen down there. It just sits there, and when all that muck and you know waste and so forth just sits there, uncompo- decomposing, and then and that's probably not even a word, undecomposing. <laughs> then when you get a a heavy rain, that's cool rain hitting this c- hot water. You can sometimes get what's called a lake turnover, and all that yuck on the bottom right. gets moved up and immediately starts decomposing from the oxygen that's up in the surface, kills the fish. 
in that mm-hmm. decomposing releases gases and yep. toxic. Yeah, toxic. That's what we call. So fish it removes meals. the oxygen. That's right. So they basically they 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 starve as oxygen. They they basically suffocate. Mm-hmm. So w- th- by diffusing, you keep some organic biology going on near the bottom. You also keep the water column moved so that the the cold water underneath is coming to the surface and vice versa, and it's keeping the water column much more cleaner. You have much less potential for fish kill, and and you can a, la- a lake will last way longer, and you can also have a higher carrying capacity because you're basically taking that waste away through nature. Um, now, surface aer- some people do surface aeration, like fountains mm-hmm. and things. Those are pretty, but they really don't do any good. Because it's the bottom it's of the It's the bottom that you're worried about. It's called about. diffusion. That's what <laughs> you, you – now, you'll see on a lake that has algae and you put a fountain. Yeah, it'll help around a circle around the fountain, but it's really not helping the total water column. It's not helping get that water on the yeah, bottom right. moved up. That's mm-hmm. right. And you were sharing some stuff about, you know, like – older ponds it, mm-hmm. it takes a while for yes. that to happen that's right that's why you may see a big beautiful pond and yep. I, I have a couple that i fished as a kid that were these i mean the first 10 years was just man it was amazing mm-hmm. and then over time as i got older it was like oh yeah i heard that that pond turned over and it's like yep. i wonder what how that happens mm-hmm. it's kind of like a clear cut that doesn't have prescribed fire yeah over time it it eventually gets out it just of gets rank yeah mm-hmm. It's out of use. And it happens usually in the summer. and ha- Well, in fact, it always happens in summer because it takes certain things for it to occur. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things is when it's really warm and yes. you get a cold rain. That's right. Because think about it. When, when you in the middle of the summer, the way uh, – have you all have done this. We talked about this. If you've ever been swimming in a pond or a lake. Yeah. Now, this doesn't happen in moving water. Like or scuba creek, diving. Right. Or scuba diving. But if in a closed system – you go down and you start going down so deep and all of a sudden it gets really cold really fast. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes is scary. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. That's the thermocline. It's like I'm 30 feet deep. Yeah, it's yeah. a thermocline. <laughs> and typically that is half the half the distance of the total depth of the lake. Mm-hmm. So if you yeah. have a lake that's 20 feet deep, your thermocline on average is going to be about 10 feet. And it you know it varies depending on the lake and the terrain. But that's, that's sort of the average. Well, below that thermocline, it's devoid of oxygen. You can run an oxygen meter, which we have, and I, we do track our oxygen in the pond. But you can have, let's say, so many parts per million at the surface. You get at that thermocline. Once you go below that, it's literally zero. Mm. There's no oxygen down there in the middle of summer. It's devoid of oxygen. That's why that biology isn't occurring, and it can yep. collect muck. So in the middle of the summer, when it's really, really, really hot, you have a really big divergence in temperature between the surface and the bottom yep. in a non-diffused lake. And so what happens is you got, let's say it's 90 degrees surface temperature, and down here it's, let's say, 70. I'm just picking numbers. You know. Well, you get this cold thunderstorm. You know, you've seen it where oh this yeah. big thunderstorm comes Rolls through in the rain, and it, it drops temperature 20 degrees. Well, all that cold water is hitting the surface. Well, remember the way, you know, the way water works. Colder water wants to sink. So now all of a sudden you've got this water at the surface, that is hot, that's cooling down. Now it's getting cold and it's starting to sink and it starts turning the lake over. And now that's why it always, well, you never say always, but it's very rarely it doesn't happen in the middle of summer after a thunderstorm. And that's when it occurs. Hmm. Wow. Major fish kills. Well, yeah. <coughs> well, it's intriguing. I mean, that, that just goes to show the importance again uh, of, goes back to the, beginning of the podcast mm-hmm. whatever it is you're doing it takes mm-hmm. management it takes management it yeah. takes ongoing you know, oversight um techniques practices recommendations whatever to 
follow through to make sure a, a system closed or open is as healthy as it can be. That's why you know right. it's a responsibility to be a landowner. That's right. It absolutely is. And here's what happens. When we were building this lake, uh, it was it was so funny. I used to tell the excavators, think like a fish. because and, and they're like, what? They would say, you want me to put that rock pile where? Because when they built ponds, they've never built a pond like this. Right. Not right. one. And all they've ever done is built them in bowls because they don't want this stuff in their ponds because they don't want their yeah. cattle tripping on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So they thought I was literally crazy. Mm-hmm. And I would say, hey, go put this uh, this big old rock pile right over there in the middle of the pond. And they would look at me like I was crazy. And I'd look at them and say, think like a fish. They'd say, what do you mean think like a fish? I'd say, if you were a fish, would you want to swim around devoid of nothing and nothingness? And, mm-hmm. Or would you want to go snuggle up to that rock pile at the perfect temperature and the perfect depth based on the conditions? Yeah. And it was kind of funny. After about a couple months of this, I would walk over the excavator and they would say, "Did Todd, did I hear you right? You wanted me to put this log over there? And I'd say, yeah. And I'd start to look at them and say, I know. Don't even tell me. Think like a fish. And it <laughs> became a joke. Yeah, yeah. But let me say this about Lake Mickey. One of my stated goals was to be the absolute most fantastic largemouth bass fishery in the entire Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe in my heart we have that. Mm-hmm. We have high catch rates. We're going to have huge fish, and we're going to intensively manage it. Manage it. And I, I always, you know, I've always heard, and I can't remember which football coach or baseball, whoever coined it, but it's called maximum effort. And there's a lot of things we cannot control. Oh, yeah. But what we can control is effort. And I can tell you that in a lake like this, there's going to be every effort made to make sure, number one, it's the healthiest. Number two, it's the biggest bass we can we can catch and the most we can catch and still stay healthy and the last thing i'll say on that part of it is back to these f1 tiger bass we are the only lake ever in the state of ohio ever to be stocked with those because we're the only person to ever get a permit Mm -hmm. you have to have a permit to bring outside fish out of state into ohio like most most states and they no one had ever ever got a permit so Mm. if anyone did it they did it illegally wow so it's it's what Not only special from a management, from a design, but from, from the stocking aspect of Absolutely. it. I mean, Absolutely. yeah. What is that, as far as the state record goes, to qualify mm-hmm. for state sure. record, if you're bringing a fish in from mm-hmm. Alabama, sure, um, that has no effect on... No, on, it has no effect. Because it's still largemouth bass. Now, and, now, let me say this. It has no effect in the sense that, that it still has to be in the lake in... in conditions wild conditions now again a lake is a closed system yeah but you can't stock it in it like i couldn't go buy a 20 pound bass and stock it in my little bluegill pond and three weeks later catch it to be a you know state record. yeah you but have to grow it here yes, and raise yes, it here exactly mm-hmm. okay so those bass those f1 tiger bass you know it doesn't matter they're still largemouth bass they're they're technically largemouth bass it's just the strain of the, them they are right and so it's perfectly legal, perfectly fine to stock them and grow them up. You just can't stock a big one and catch it and say, I just. Yeah. And Same way you can't yeah. go and buy a pen raised deer and turn him loose on a wild place. Yes. And that's yeah. right. You can't, it's yeah. it's got to be grown here. So what are some of the biggest mistakes people will make in, in creating a pond like this? Okay. The overall construction, what, what are some of the biggest problems with the construction of a pond? Number one is the dam has to be. 
That's AAA number one. You have to have a you have to have a proper core trench. It needs to be done by someone who knows what they're doing, because basically there's an estimate out there that 90% of the ponds leak. Oh. Every pond's going to leak eventually. Uh, it's 100% of ponds back yeah. home. Yeah. But you have to, well, let me even go beyond that. You have to pick the right site. Because mm-hmm. we talked True. about this the other day. If you have a karst terrain, which is a lot of yeah. limestone, a lot of rock, you're going to oh, have a hard time yeah. having there's, a lake. There's cracks, yeah. crevices. Yeah. So caves. you have to have a lot of clay. Yeah. And it has gotcha. to be the right kind of clay. And so your site is extremely important. We actually dug quite a few core trench, or excuse me, trench holes mm-hmm. around to make sure we had the proper material to build the pond, which we did. This part of the country is a lot of clay. Mm-hmm. So the dam is the most important, but, but, but that's every pond. But the, the, f- the first mistake most people make is they build a bowl. Yeah. They just build a bowl. And a bowl is not, you can still grow fish there and you can still catch them, but you're never going to be able to have the goals that we do if you just build a bowl. You're mm-hmm. going to have to put structure and cover and all these things we're talking about. That's the second mistake. The third mistake is they don't manage it. And a, a lake can quickly get out of balance, quickly. I'll give you an example. Back to the story about the excavators. One of the guys that was here, he has his own pond. It's a beautiful, beautiful pond. They actually do weddings on his mm-hmm. property. And it's gorgeous. But he told me, he says, man, we can go out and we can catch all kinds of fish, but every single one of them are oh, 10, 12 inches, and they all skinny. Remember what we talked about yep. earlier? That yep. is that is the same story you get all across the country. Yep. It doesn't yep. matter whether you're in Florida or you're in Minnesota. If your pond is overcrowded with bass, you're going to have 10 to 12, 14-inch skinny bass. Mm. So you're going to have lots of them. So a guy yeah. that's in that situation, since they're everywhere, I can think of multiples back home. Mm-hmm. What do you do to fix that problem? Start taking them out. Just, just start aggressively catching, catching fish and aggressively. hauling them out. Haul them out. Or use them for fertilizer for your food plots. Yep. Just yeah. get them out of there. Eat them, do what you want to, but get them out. Don't take them and stock somebody else's pond with them because you're yeah. just taking the problem to them. Yeah. Get them out of the system. Ray Scott, I think it was Ray Scott, once said, when you think you've caught enough and taken them out, Catch them all. Take, a, take a bunch more. Kind of like what we talked about with pruning tea. trees today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. When you think you've pruned enough limbs, <clears throat> just keep cutting. It's hard to take out too many. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, let's say you're in aggressive culling, and let's say that you're, if you're doing this scientifically, that you're – you're trying to take out, let's say, your 14-inch bass. I'm just picking one as a random example. Let's say you catch a 14-inch bass that's big and fat. Just because your slot limit's 14 inches, you don't take that bass out. If that's a big old fat bass, it's probably a female. Mm-hmm. You want those in there, and if it's thriving as 14 inches when all the other 14-inch bass are skinny, you want that bass back in your pond. Gotcha. So you've got to be smart about this. You can't just... <clears throat> It, it's, it's like doing TSI. Yeah. It's the closed, exactly the closed like, system, yeah. if you will. There's so many, you know, so many stems per acre. Mm-hmm. You're selecting mm-hmm. the best form, right. the best shape, the best canopy, the That's healthiest right. tree, leaving it and That's removing right. the rest. It's, ir- it's ironic that it? pond management is so Isn't similar it? to managing land. It's oh, all, yeah. All created Diversity, by God. Diversity. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I love it because that, that to me, like, you you basically can learn and apply so much of, of one aspect. You're extremely knowledgeable in ponds, as we know. Um, 17 years. You know, they say that if you do 10,000 hours of anything, mm-hmm. you become an expert. I don't have any degree in biology or anything else, but I can assure you I have way more than 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. like us. Yeah. Yep. We don't, yeah. We're not certified wildlife biologists, but I guarantee we have 10,000 hours of, That's right. of studying landscapes and, well, and I've had improving. several. You're, you're the best that I've ever seen. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. here's, here's another major mistake people don't think about. Yeah. And it's done all the time. 
You spend all this money, and by the way, we spent a lot of money stocking this pond and building this mm -hmm. pond uh, for la largemouth bass and bluegill, okay? Somebody brings in a fish, hey, I got this big catfish I'm going to put in your pond. Don't you ever let anybody bring a fish and put in your pond, ever, of any kind, mm -hmm. never. Another one, don't let boats in your pond. Yeah. Because you go, you talked about the mussels. Invasive aquatic. Yeah, you go to the river, this person drives their boat in the river, they go to a lake, and they get mussels on the bottom. And those things are kind of microscopic at first. They can get in your live wells, they can get in yeah. your motor, they can get in your, and then you bring them in your lake, and now you've got a mussel problem. So yeah. never, ever let another That's boat like in your. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems with the zebra mussels is people are, well, I don't have any on the bottom of my boat. I can't, like, they're not stuck to it, but right. they're microscopic. Right. They say it almost feels like sand if they're there. And you, if you're going to let another boat in your pond, you better make real sure that you clean that boat live well, the Inside lower out. unit of the motor, everything, and make sure there's nothing there. And yeah. you, in fact, you ought to do it yourself. Don't leave mm -hmm. it up to the person coming mm -hmm. in. You do it. Yeah. Here's another mistake that people just don't think about. Live bait. I don't allow live bait in my pond. Other than worms. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. You go to the bait store and you get live bait. You don't know if there's chubs. You don't know if there's bluegill, carp. It's whatever they bought. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's, a, it's usually the cheapest. Shiners. It could be anything. Yeah. Well, you start fishing in your pond and those things are wiggling around. One gets off your hook. Yep. Now, what if that's a pregnant female? What if two get off your hook? It just takes oh, a yeah. female and a male and life has a way. <laughs> of finding a way to live. Oh, it's certainly you just uh, you just basically it's invasive. That's like putting autumn olives, honey locusts, uh, all these things that Japanese Bush honey suck. You just added that. them to your system. Yep. You'll never be able to control them without draining your lake. So do not allow any live bait whatsoever in your pond if you truly want it to be mm -hmm. a, a trophy pond. I've always heard that crappie is one of the worst things you can add to a lake like this. Like this, I discussed that a lot with Bob. What to, what to to stock and here's what he told me he says yeah you have more diversity with crappie and perch and some of these other things he says but think of it look at mouth size of fish and that tells mm -hmm. you everything what does a crappie have it's got that mouth that looks kind of like a uh, it flexes and it looks like a, a, a what am i thinking of a accordion accordion it's got yeah. an accordion mouth okay it's got a pretty big mouth for its size well that means it's going to compete with the bass mm -hmm. for forage that's mm -hmm. it so you're just throwing something in there that it's like having hogs yeah. Yeah. on a farm that you want to have big turkey and deer. They're eating the same food. They're mm -hmm. running your, your habitat. No different. A crappie is a great game fish. In fact, I have crappie in one of my other small ponds. Mm -hmm. I have crappie and perch. But they're not going in my bass lake. Yep. Nothing is going in my bass lake if I can help it mm -hmm. that does anything to hurt the potential. Now let me throw another one at you. How do you self-cull a bass lake? That's an interesting question. Without catching them, you can actually add certain strains of, of like a tiger musky. Okay, hmm. and I believe it's a tiger musky. And if I'm wrong about this, I, I do apologize. Bob would tell me, but I think they're they're not they're not fertile. Okay. And so you can put four or five of those in there, and they'll really cull your bass population. And what are they going to eat? They're probably going to eat a lot of those 12, 14 inch bass. So you can put four or five of those in there, and that does that's like putting coyotes on your farm to get rid of some of your deer. Yeah. Mm. So you can actually use predators to help call your lake. Someone just went, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure they yeah. get Todd's email yeah. after that. Yeah, I didn't say right. put coyotes on your farm. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. And they're probably already there. You know, yeah. and I'm not, yeah, again, are. you guys are way more expertise on this <clears> than I am, but I don't understand people sometimes. 
we say we have way too many deer. We go out and we shoot 20 doe or does, however you say it. But yet we kill every coyote on our farm. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily it get that. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense yep. to me. Now, maybe yep. I'm wrong. It's just me. Now, no, I, we're in the same no. boat as you. It doesn't yeah. make sense because it, it takes a lot of man hours to mm-hmm. – it takes a lot of manage, man hours to try to create a void of coyotes that benefits a deer herd. That's right. It, you, That's right. Going and trapping a couple of them doesn't do squat. Right. Why not make your habitat better so the fawns have a fighting chance? That's, That's exactly right. right. Back to the lake example. You don't want to take some tiger muskies, and if, again, if the species is wrong, Bob will, Bob will just choke on himself, but I think that that's the right one. I'm not going to put that in a pond that doesn't have structure and cover and things, because those tiger muskies muskie will devastate your bass population if the bass don't have structure and cover. Uh, it's huh. just like old field habitat or, let's say, switchgrass or timber management. You're giving the animal, the prey species, in this case, the bass is actually yep. the prey yep. species, you're giving them cover and structure to hide in so they can get away from that tiger muskie. It's the same thing with the bluegills. Yeah. A bass will devastate a bluegill population in a bowl pond that has no structure and cover. You will lose your small forage. They'll devastate it. They'll eat it out of, you, you'll have none left. You have to give those little animals, we call it dense cover and fluffy cover in the bass world. Mm-hmm. Dense cover is small, tight spaces that a bass can't, or a tiger muskie can't Is that where riprap, like big rocks, would come in? The crevices Explain in the, the difference. Right. Yeah, yes. okay. Here, let me give you an example. Think of a tree. And I got sidetracked on tiger muskie. Let's just go back to bass and bluegill, because I don't want to complicate this too much. <laughs> Let's say you have a big old sycamore tree that's got big, huge limbs, and there's lots of spaces between the limbs. Okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You put that in your pond. That is what we call fluffy cover. Bass and bluegill will snuggle up to it, and they will relate to it, just like a deer might relate to it's an edge. It's kind of weird. Snuggling yeah. up and fluffy. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, dent, that's fluffy cover, and that's what we call it. It's, it's no different than a bass relating to the edge, where we have edge. Mm-hmm. They're edge creatures. Same yeah. way. A bass is not going to sit out in open water when it can go snuggle up to a limb. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. That, but that doesn't offer protection from predators. Well, there you have it. We're not even sure where it finally cut off. Unfortunately, um, somehow the we had some technical difficulties, and so we got we lost our our main man Todd in that conversation. But man, what some what a, how great was that information? You know, Todd is an <coughs> extremely passionate person. That when he when he decides and sets his mind to do something, he does it. And he does it right. And he studies it. Um, obviously, this is a prime example of that. He studied ponds and everything about fisheries for years and years and years. Uh, 20 years. <clears throat> and then has built and is following up and continuing to manage this farm, excuse me, this pond so intensely. But it's all derived from passion. That's what I love about it. And, like, and I think we had this conversation after recording. But I said something about when it comes to, like, hiring or looking at somebody and saying, Who's, who, who do I want to help me? Mm-hmm. I said I'd rather have the guy that's passionate about something. Right. Um, rather than the guy who's got the long list of time. Credentials. Spent, the long list of time that he spent in a classroom studying. Now, that's great. But at the same they time, both have I, their want place. S- I want somebody who's very passionate about what they do because I know that passion is going to drive them to the late night studies on their own time. And 
Um, Todd's a prime example of that. Todd, uh, no doubt. Um, he's, extre- again, extremely knowledgeable about this. We we could have gone in so many different directions with that podcast, um, and that's not the the first time you've heard from Todd. It won't be the last time you've heard from him, especially on this matter, too, because ponds and, and fishing is a whole other type of recreation that, honestly, Land Legacy hasn't um, gotten into yet, and, and it's something that uh, we're excited to continue talking about and moving forward with so what a great resource what a great <laughs> starting point um there'll be more in this and i hope that in the discussion though uh, you uh, you were able to hear the parallels between even a closed system and an open system and what we talk about on a daily basis it's super cool to com- compare and analyze very the very similar very similar like it, and I can't wait to – hopefully we'll probably use it as the picture for this one, but you can see the structures that he has in that pond. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's funny because I'm sure if you haven't looked at the picture yet or whatever, you, or, or as we were getting started with the podcast, um, you may have underestimated the, the design of the pond. But take a look at the picture, and, and you'll see for yourself that it's absolutely incredible. So um, – Hope you guys enjoyed it and were able to take something away from the podcast and uh, understand another way that land can be used. For sure. I, I'm sitting here as we're wrapping this up. I got that downloaded, that clip as we went through the farm. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it on my phone now, and it's just yeah. unbelievable the amount of work and transformation that's getting ready to happen on that place. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and and if you guys have questions about ponds or you're Absolutely. interested in, in uh, you're building a pond and you, or you're draining a pond and you're trying to shoot us an uh, email, info at TV, and we'll get everything lined up to, for, who knows, we can help you, Todd can help you, we're here to help. So No doubt. Anyway, uh, hope, hopefully uh, you guys... Learn something about ponds and, and, and who knows. fisheries you, and bass. You're going to see us holding some pictures of fish. Some lunkers. Come uh, May. May. Middle of so. May, we'll be back out at Todd's, um, work with him on another project. So um, there'll be more. Hang tight. See ya.